0: This is Dave Broadback coming to you from my podcast studio at home my podcast studio it's my room mm-hmm. used my daughter's bedroom anyway um, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course uh, psychology 3717 uh, for the winter term 2017 the course is called memory which might give away the, the you know the, the content is mostly memory um, so uh, hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome back from the break, Uh, and as noted, as I said, today we're going to talk about animal memory, this is actually interesting. Um, The other stuff's interesting too, this is just what I do. The human memory stuff is more of a sideline for me. So comparative psychology, which is really what we're talking about here, is as old as psychology itself. There's no doubt about that. People have been asking questions like what animal is the smartest animal since people have been asking questions about things being smart, including people. This goes back to Thorndike even with the puzzle boxes. You may have learned about that. The reason he did the puzzle box work was to find out which animals were the smartest. Um, people have looked at all kinds of different sort of tasks, serial position effects, uh, primacy, recency, interference, all that stuff over the years. And those are all things, of course, we talk about in human memory. So there's an implicit question here, isn't there? It's almost an explicit question, really. And when I say implicit, I don't mean like implicit memory. I mean like there's a question at the basis of this. And the question you're asking there then is can animals do what people do? And at, at, at first, that seems like an interesting question, doesn't it? Right? It sounds like something I wonder if animals can do X or Y. But when you start to think about this a little bit, you've got to wonder what's the basis for the question. It's kind of like saying, well, people can do it. I wonder if stupid animals can do it. So I guess there's some kind of ladder to evolution. And at the top, there's humans. Then above them, there's angels and then God. And then everything else is trying to become angels and God. But below that is everything else trying to be human. And in fact, I got a reference there because, in fact, Hotus and Campbell basically in 1969 said, there's a, prob- there's a problem in comparative psychology. And if you've looked at the reading from Shettleworth, you'll see um, where she talks about that as well. It's not how evolution works. It's not a ladder. It's not a ladder. It's a tree. It's a wonderful tree of life. The biology students, and there's a few of them in this room, know that this is true. Um, there's no top. There's no goal. Uh, ideas like that are simply wrong. It's not that they're just. It's almost like the phys- a saying a physicist once said. I, I can't remember who said it. Remember who said it? But he said, "It's not that that's not right. It's just not even wrong. Like it's completely ridiculous. You're asking the wrong question." We don't understand how evolution works. It's not a lab. The better question is what selective pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive systems. We talked about this if you remember the Sherry and Schachter paper uh, from a few weeks ago about the evolution of multiple memory systems. And so this, 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 this is it here, that we look at the pressures that the animal has to have lived with over its evolutionary history, and how would that shape the cognitive mechanisms that have evolved. So asking what species is smartest is a silly question. It's kind of like saying, why can't humans flap their arms and fly? And you think, that's a stupid question. Well, birds can do it. Why can't we do it? Oh, yeah. See, it's it's a ridiculous question. Why can't birds do what we do? Instead, let's look at different species and their life histories, their ecology, and say, okay, what kind of questions can we ask about these animals and their cognitive abilities? So to do this, we have to do comparisons between species. So how do we do that? We have to do comparisons between species in Memory, in cognition. So let's just pretend we're comparing two species on a task. I don't know what task it is. We don't have to worry about that right now. And the thing is, how do we know anything that happens with one species or another isn't simply due to motivational differences? Like, how do we know? Like, let's say this is a ridiculous example, but let's say that we're doing something where one where we're, we're comparing people and dolphins, and I'm going to reward you with with live fish, whole live fish thrown in your mouth don't think you'd be very motivated to complete that task. And then what I conclude, well, dolphins are smarter than people. Well, no, that would be ridiculous. Right? The thing is, there's much more subtle things like that that it may be that, you know, a food pellet means more to a rat than it does to a hamster or something like that. Who knows? So this is an idea that Bitterman talked about uh, back oh, geez, in the 60s, mid-60s. And uh, to this day uh, saying that we have to take the idea of motivational effects into account. And that's fine. I I don't think it's ridiculous, and I think trying to equal things out for two species, uh, or however many species you're comparing, is a sensible approach. So this guy Ewan McPhail, who... uh, You'd never guess he was Scottish, being named Ewan McPhail. Uh, in, geez, mid, early mid-80s. <laughs> says says this. In science, we have the null hypothesis, and that's what we reject or don't reject, right? You all take, well, maybe you haven't all taken, but most of you have taken a sort of scientific class. You understand it. null hypothesis where nothing happens. That is the, we try to prove that incorrect. If we have no evidence, we can't say something happened, right? Okay. Questions? Does that make sense? I know not everybody in here is a psychobiology student, though the vast majority are, but if you're not, you understand that idea sort of logically. It's like guilty, not guilty. You've got to prove someone guilty. Okay? The difference is here: OJ doesn't walk, it's just that you don't get a paper published. <laughs> yes, that's right. Cultural references as fresh as 20 years ago. <laughs> um, okay so our null hypothesis is there is no difference in memory between two species okay that makes sense but you got to keep that motivational thing in mind because you know what if it's about being having fish thrown in your mouth oh yeah So it's going to be hard to find differences between species, right? And and be able to interpret them under McPhail's idea. You may notice that I'm setting up what people call a straw man. So there was a response to this written, and this, this, in fact, this paper changed my life. It literally changed my life by this guy, Al Campbell. And Al right there is holding a Clark's nutcrack. I do an impression of Al Camel that is pretty much dead on, but it wouldn't help any of you. And the chance of me ever going to Vegas with it is exceedingly slim. Al noted that there's a fatal flaw in this reasoning. You've set up a null hypothesis. It's impossible to reject. Every time I find the between species, I say, yeah, motivation. So what do we do? Do we quit? Would we quit? Well, no. We never quit. We're comparative psychologists. We never quit. A scientist, man, back off. So Camel says, "How do you know?" He has this idea. How do we fix this? How do we do comparisons between species in memory research, in, or as Al says, you know, uh, just general intelligence? You could say, "How would we do it?" He says, "Test many species in many different paradigms." Many species, many different paradigms—not so just one kind of maze or one kind of task in a Skinner box, but many, many, many paradigms. Okay? Does it make sense so far? I'm trying to lay the theoretical groundwork. Here. If we find differences between two or more species that always go in the same direction, no matter what the task is. it seems less and less likely it's a motivational thing, right? Like, you know how, for example, some people just aren't good at math, and that's fine. But they're, you know, they're pretty good at English, let's say. You think back to high school, when you need to take math and English and all those things, and some people just don't do well at one subject. Right? And that's fine. That could almost be like, the well, that's the one case, right? Oh, I'm not good at this. But if I was to say that person one was smarter than person two, I would expect that usually person one had better grades than person two, no matter what the course they would take. If it's always the case when you say, Oh, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at English, I'm not good at geography, I'm not good at history, you're not good at school. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You're just not good at school. And in that case, we found a difference. On the other hand, sometimes it is just oh well, there's just one little blip. Or if the people were actually the same at school, we would expect over time that you'd be better. Than, person one would be better than person two. As many times as person two is better than person one, right? Okay. Error kind of cancels. That's why I don't give you one test. Because sometimes you have a bad day, or a good day, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life history of the animal, that's for the non-biological sort of biological people in the room, the life history is basically uh, the ecology, the environment it's in, it's reproductive system, all that stuff. We're going to look at neuroscience, so we're going to look at brain stuff. And we're going to look at, of course, psychology. And then we're going to say, what differences should have evolved because of the life history? And then we're going to, this is a crazy idea. Instead of saying, I wonder if rats can do this, we're going to make predictions that two species might differ on something. OK, questions? Because that's the theoretical basis for everything I'm going to talk about here and for the reason I have a PhD. Hard to believe this was controversial when I was in graduate school. It's now the way people think because people people came around to the way of thinking that I was subscribed to, and I had very little to do with it. So the example I want to give you is, to begin with, is about food-storing birds. On the top left there, you see a black cat chickadee. That actually might be a marsh tit. They look so much the same. Um, a marsh tit is just a, a British black-capped chicken it's the same thing It's well chickadee dee see it's really the only difference um beside that is a clark's nutcracker clark's nutcracker is a food storing bird that lives in the southwestern united states it stores about 30,000 seeds in the fall recovers 25,000 of them six months later in a 40 kilometer radius that's impressive you do that you can't now you know you can do you're a human you can write it down I was once asked years ago by the Discovery Channel, "What's the smartest animal?" And I was like, "Oh, great! This is going to be fun because I can say a stupid this is a stupid question." I said, "Kind of a silly question. Clark's Nutcracker can do all this, but I've never seen a Clark's Nutcracker build a civilization or drive a car." They never called me back. Um, <laughs> uh, on the top right, that's Sir John Krebs. Baron of Whiteham and Wood and a member of the British House of Lords, also a very famous biologist. Um, he's the principal of Jesus College at Oxford, which is kind of great because his email address is principal at Jesus, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, I've known John for years, so he's now a British Lord. It's weird. I hadn't emailed him in a long time, then I went to email him, and was like, How what do you, how do you, what do you the Lordship? What do I call him? So I just emailed Hey John, fine. Hey so it worked out. Bottom right, Sarah Shuttleworth. You, there's an article on the website of hers you should read. She's my PhD advisor. Uh, bottom middle there, that's Robert Hampton. He was a grad student in Sarah's lab along with me. And this is a new picture. I, you may, if you have the things, I took the other one out. This is, notice the name of that building at Western, the Advanced Facility for Avian and Research. This is how interesting people find this. Look at all those people. Sixth from the left is my daughter. The top, uh, about 10th from the left, is one of Rob Hampton's now graduate students. We're now old people. That's Rob in Africa on his honeymoon with the skull of a warthog. The skull of a warthog. Anyway, so that's some of the people you're here (laughs) to talk about. People like Dave Sherry's in that picture there at at AFAR. Uh, Scott McDougall Shackleton, really great people, really smart people. So we call this approach to looking at animal memory the synthetic approach because we synthesize all kinds of different disciplines together. It's not like it's not, it doesn't have any cotton in it or something, it's just a synthetic value. So Anderson and Krebs, there's that John Krebs. By the way, his father found the Krebs cycle. His father won a Nobel Prize. I said to him once, John, if my dad won the Nobel Prize, I would have gone into NASCAR. I wouldn't have gone into biology. What's NASCAR? It's like Formula One, but they only turn left, and it sucks. And then he started talking about root beer, and he hates root beer like most Brits. Um, Anderson and Krebs developed this mathematical model of when would food storing evolve And food storing should only evolve when you recover your own seeds, your own food. Nature is not a socialist paradise. Nature is red in tooth and claw. We don't want to be... Sweet. You you, if you, Let's pretend we all shared. If we all shared our food. You know what? I'm not going to store any food. I'm going to take all your food. <laughs> food storing dies out. Because I am successful. While you're all out storing food for the group, uh, I'll probably go have sex with your with all your mates. So I'll pass my genes on. Also, I expend less energy. I win, you lose, ha, ha, ha. It's only going to work if I recover my own food. Nature's mean. So if they can only recover their own food, it's probably the case that they use memory. Oh, now it's getting interesting. So Sherry Avery and Stevens, Dave Sherry, um, out in and Wood, in Oxford, put out bowls of radioactive pine seeds. Why? Well, went, look, no one's getting hurt from these. It's enough they can track them. They can track them. So what happens is now we know where the birds took them and where they stored them, and now you can do is you can move some of them. The ones that were moved didn't get found because the birds are finding where they put the seeds Make sense? It's a field experiment. Still pretty damn cool. So they're probably using memory. But you don't know this for sure. Well, if they, the thing is, if they were using smell, and some of the seats they only move 10 centimeters, and they aren't recovering them, uh, it's probably memory. Right? Okay, so questions so far. This is where we're at. Early 80s. People were very excited. A lot of people listening to Echo and the Bunnymen with great big hair. A lot of people listening to The Cure. They're in England, I'm just saying. Sarah Shuttleworth then goes over to Oxford and does a postdoc, not a postdoc, sorry, a sabbatical year. And she works with John, in John Krebs' lab. And they put up artificial trees. And by trees, I mean four by fours with holes drilled in, a, in an aviary. The birds, (coughs) excuse me, would take seeds and store them in the in the holes in the the wood, and then they take the bird out, uh, and then they put some randomly placed seeds in, as well as some of the bird's own seeds. The birds recover their own seeds, not the randomly placed seeds. Uh huh. They're using memory. So, like I said, also they didn't move half of the seeds. So they're clearly using memory. These are marsh tits, by the way. So, those are those little British kind of chickens. Um, Chickadees and titmice are in the species Paridae, sorry, family Paridae. And they're a food storing family, so is the, the family Corbidae. That's Jays and uh, Nutcrackers. Um, the data were pretty clear on, with Jays and Nutcrackers that the more they stored in their life, like their lifestyle, their life history, the better their memory was. It wasn't so clear with the parents. It wasn't so clear with the parents. Though, as a rule, the parents didn't rely on stored food as much as the <coughs> as the corvids. Question. Okay. I think I've mentioned probably not in this class, but I've mentioned in other classes the idea that hippocampus is bigger in food-storing birds than it is in non-storing birds. So there's a difference there. Hippocampus is important as we know from memory in humans. It's also important for memory in non-humans. <coughs> and the difference is there. Dave Sherry's group were one of the first, or I guess the first, to find the difference between <coughs> excuse me, stores and non-stores and um, hippocampal volume. And it's true in parrots as well as corvids and city day, which are not uh, hatches. Okay. But the, the behavioral, the cognitive differences were sometimes yes, sometimes no. It made you think, oh, oh well, maybe there are no differences between food storing and non-storing parrots. The classic example here: uh, you got marsh tit, which is a food store, and great tit, which is a non-store. But they're both in the same family, and sometimes they find differences, and sometimes they wouldn't. The data are, to this day, pretty much equivocal when you look at things like how long they remember, how much they can remember. So maybe, <coughs> God, I haven't talked in front of people in nine days, and my, my voice is gone. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's not how much they remember, but how they remember. Maybe they're doing it differently. In other words, this could be a qualitative difference, not a quantitative difference. So a bright young graduate student <coughs> uh, showed up in, in Sarah Shuttleworth's lab and started thinking about these questions and doing some science. And there he is. Um, With Sarah, my hair was so long, it was down here. Montreal just won the Stanley Cup. That's why I have that T-shirt. On. That's at the party. That's my going away party. Actually. So, I was interested in comparing stores and non-stores in different tasks, and looking at what they remembered, not how much they remembered. And a couple of pretty cool papers came to that. Um, the, the the sole authorship one that's with chickadees and juncos in an aviary, the Broadbeck and Shuttleworth one, that's with chickadees and juncos. Junkos are non-stores, they also aren't parrots, but they live in the same area. Um, with a computer touchscreen. Here's something I did a long time ago. You can see here that what happens is, so I had a whole bunch of feeders. These feeders were basically pieces of two by four, about that big, with a dowel in them so the bird could perch, and a hole drilled in them. I had, I think, 104, and they were all painted differently. And every day I would randomly choose four of them and put them up on the wall in the aviary. and... Um, and one of them had a peanut in it, in the hole. The bird would fly in, find the peanut. That's what the arrow is pointing to. It would eat for 30 seconds, and then I'd turn the lights off. And when you turn the lights off, the birds go towards light. And I'd turn the light on in their cage, they'd fly back into the cage, and I'd close the little trap door. And I'd wait for five minutes, or 30 minutes, or 24 hours. Well, I wouldn't sit there for 24 hours. But maybe five minutes. And if I read five minutes, I'd read the newspaper. Or I'd mark assignments, because I was TA. And then when the time was up, I'd let the bird back in. And his task, or her task, we didn't sex them, was to find where the food was. you think, well, that's easy, Dave, they could see it. Not when you put pieces of Velcro over the holes. Then the bird has to go in, rip off the little piece of Velcro, and eat the peanut. Yay! They get pretty good at this pretty quickly. And they don't have to be food stores. The junkos were good at this, too. This is easy. About 15 trials, they're right around perfect. So then I move everything over and swap a couple of them around. You see that? I've moved everything over and swapped a couple around. So now we have one feeder. So this one here was baited, you see? This one here was baited. I've moved them over and swapped a couple around. This one's in the correct spatial location. This one is in the correct position in the array, right? Relative to the other ones. And this one's in the correct position with respect to its color. And then I take that, oh, and they go back in. And I, I don't, I take the peanut out of it because I want to see their second choice and their third choice. Look what the chickadees do, space, array, color. Global space, and then local space, and then finally the color. They're remembering the color, they just don't care about it as much. They return later to eat it. Move them around. They respond mostly to the spatial location. Dark-eyed juncos don't. They're dead equal in all three. See, they remember just as well, they just remember differently. And I made those figures on a Mac... Nineteen ninety two. So and it took forever. And the Mac screens back then, I don't know if you ever seen those, they were like this big. It was like you were Mr. Spock looking into that thing. Bad it's bad enough for me looking at a computer normally, but I'm like <laughs> I did the same thing using a touch-sensitive computer monitor, touch screen, um, which was complicated, because I had to write software that read a touch screen. It's a different day, different time. Now you would use, you know, an iPad, but not then. So I did this with a touch screen. Same kind of idea. The birds were rewarded for going to a place that had a uh, one place and not another. I switch things around. It's basically the same task on a much smaller scale. I can also get way more trials. With the going into an aviary, I can get one a day or maybe two. With this, I could get 120 a day. Much better. So they have different colored patches in the screen. They peck at them. I switch them around. The chickadees rely on space. The juncos don't. And in fact, in another experiment, was actually determined the chickadees directly tested for color are poor on color because they can't help but remember the spatial location. They're hooked up that way. You can teach them. It just takes forever. It takes a long time. Yeah, please. Sorry, the, the three cues are location, color, and array? The array, where they are in relation to the different feeders. In relation to the... To the, the other, the feeders. other feeders. feeders, that's right. Yes. Okay, So it's also a spatial cue, but it is a a local spatial cue, you could call it. So functionally, in other words sort of evolutionarily, this makes a lot of sense. The birds remember where something is, not what color it is. Well, they remember that, they just pay less attention to it. Colors change. And in fact, local spatial things even change. When do they store food? They store food in the winter. Suddenly more snow. Oh, I'm screwed. Oh, right, the line of trees over there and it's a vector from that line to here. And Actually, that's probably what they're encoding is a vector from distal landmarks to a certain position, which is really cool the weird result is the one from the Junkos, in fact, because usually you'd find that animals generally would rely on space. There's something special about my task. I don't know what it is. And this has been replicated in other food-storing and non-storing species. There's something weird and special about it. To this day, no one can figure out what it is. It's been replicated, so it's not like it's a .05 thing. I didn't just get lucky. We found this, uh, me and three honors students found this. Don't don't, do that automatically. Go back. You're not going to do that. All right, let's go back. Okay, it's going to. Oh, if it does this automatically, it's going to bug me. I want to talk about some stuff that I did a few years back that is similar to this, with this student Jessica Humber, who won a summer insert to work with me. There's these birds called pine siskins, and I have a feeling this is going to do this automatically. I don't know why it's doing that, and it bugs me. I, I, I am completely out of control now. We might have to just skip this whole bit. That's not letting me go back. You know what? Now, it was so interesting, too. It's like timed and going on its own. It's, it's, the computer has a mind of its own! <laughs> What does it all mean? I don't know. It means the world has taken over. Something has taken over my computer. This is where I thank people that I did research with. They're my children. When they were younger. Look at the snowbank in Cornerbrook. There's Eric. He's a professor now. Okay, fine. Skip that. I don't care. Stupid thing. I can't make it stop, and I'm not stopping to edit the damn thing. If you really care about that work, I give you a reprint. I can send you a PDF of it. That's too bad. Basically, it was that these pine siskins, these little birds that live in western Newfoundland, um, behave like chickens. They remember the spatial location at the expense of other things. And this made sense to us, Jessica Humber and I, because basically they have to be super sensitive to food fluctuations. Because, in fact, they don't always migrate very far, but sometimes they migrate really far, and that's in response to a fluctuating food supply. So we figured it was a food supply thing. turned out that was the case. She did this experiment in her backyard, which was great. But I didn't get to talk about it. But I told, them, I told you about it now. You want to read about it? Go ahead. <laughs> it's on the bulletin board outside my office. Okay. Fine. We'll just do this slide next thing. So animal memory can be divided... We can talk about systems in the same way we talk about it with human memory. We can talk about working memory, which is the rules... Or sorry, which is the memory that's needed for a single trial of a task. So with my uh, thing with the birds going into the room, it's like, where was the where was the seed just five minutes ago? That's working memory. And reference memory is... The rules of the game. The rules of the game in that case are the seat is always in the place it was before. Okay? You can kind of think of reference memory as long-term memory and working memory as short-term memory. They kind of overlap. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Okay. There's a couple of here's a few neat ways you can study animal memory. One of them is called delayed matching to sample or DMTS. So DMTS is like this. Draw a picture. The bird is presented. This is, let's say is a, a pigeon. Let's say it's a pigeon with a red light. It pecks at the red light a little bit, and the red light disappears. And we get a retention interval, let's say, of five seconds. Then the bird gets a choice between a red light and a green light. If it pecks the red light, it gets food. If it pecks the green light, it gets no food. Okay. They're pretty good at this pretty quickly. And of course... Sometimes it's on the right, sometimes it's on the left. Right, idiots. Okay. You can do non-matching the sample, too. Basically, in that case, back to our drawing, now the right answer is to go to to the green one, not the red one. So the working memory part of this So there's, the reference memory part of this would be match to sample the, the working memory part of this is if red peck red, if green peck green sorry that's reference memory, if red peck red if green peck green or match to sample the working memory part is it was red or it was green okay you can actually get qualitative differences here too because this is what tripped me up. there are two ways to solve this task one of them is have a reference memory task that says if red peck red if green peck green the other one is to say match to sample how could you differentiate between those two how could you tell if the animals had learned if red peck red if green peck green or if they just learned match to sample thoughts a hard question. What if you train them up on red and green and then just switch them over to blue and yellow? If you switch them over to blue and yellow, if they've learned if red peck red, if green peck green, they should go, I don't know what to do here, it's blue and yellow. The world has changed on me. If they've learned match to sample, they're like, huh, blue. Oh, okay. I guess I'll wait for the. Th- oh, it matches. Good. You know what pigeons learn? Pigeons learn if red, peck red, if green, peck green, because pigeons are stupid. Jackdaws, which are cool, learn match to sample. It's very nice. Both of these things, by the way, are subject to proactive and retroactive interference. This see, I've been going on and on about don't worry about it if it's like people or not, but there are some things that are going to be universal. The idea of interference is gonna be universal. It makes sense that any memory system would have would be subject to interference, doesn't it? so any memory system should be subject to interference. Yeah, please. Um, if they're learning like matching to a sample, yes. do they also like show a
0: specific pattern of like light
1: flashing? Like red, green, red, and then they have to repeat that, or does that not work? Yeah, that works. Uh, Roberts, Nakuta, and Broadback, nineteen ninety seven. Okay. Memory for number to, for number of light flashes in the pigeon. I never, ever thought I'd ever mention that article, ever. <laughs> it's hanging out up outside my office. It, it's all, and it's a barn burner. <laughs> yeah, you can teach it. They can match all kinds of things. One of the neat things that happens is it's a very difficult task, actually, for pigeons. I know it sounds simple, but because of the interference, it's like, was that red Or was my remembering red Or was it red two trials ago and one trial ago? The interference builds up. If you give them what are called trial-unique stimuli, so every single stimulus is different, then they have to learn, by the way, match the sample. They have to. That's the first thing I think that makes it hard for pigeons. Um, But they can learn it. If they do that, they can remember slides they saw six months ago. But it takes forever to to train them up on trial-unique stimuli. That's uh, one Delius's work. Yeah, Delius and Wright. Delius, Santiago, and Wright. Um, and it, it's, it's very cool. I mean, just having the patience to have your birds just not do an experiment for six months while you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and then you run them, and they still remember if they're ones they've seen before or not, if they use unique stimuli. If you use the same stimuli, it's subject interference. Right? It's subject interference. So both these things, by the way, subject to proactive and retroactive interference, both DMTS and DNMTS, late non-magic disease. This is used in all kinds of different animal species, not just, say, pigeons or such as birds. You'll see this used a lot with monkeys, too. This is one of those ways people say things like, well, how do you know the animal can see in color? Well, if it can do these things, these color-based tasks tasks, then you know that actually uh, it can see in color. If it can respond to color, it must be able to see. It. I was actually asked that my PhD oral, if chickadees, could see color. And I said, uh, well, they respond to color. And they got all the gear in their eyes. And the guy said, But you didn't directly test it. I said, well, no. I was busy discovering this stuff. (laughs) Ever the smartass in his PhD world. I said, if you want to do it, though, the gear isn't allowed. (laughs) Yeah, I was, that was a, the guy was bugging me. I'm just saying, he was bugging me. I was pretty happy with myself doing that. He also got mad at me for thanking Montreal for winning the Stanley Cup in my acknowledgement section. (laughs) And I asked him if he was a Leaf fan. Ended the discussion. No, I had to. I mean, what's, what's? The, ah, come on, you don't go after somebody's acknowledgement section unless I said I also pledge allegiance to ISIS and Hitler. I mean, just leave it alone. I was saying thank you to my wife and stuff like that. Well, I don't think this is appropriate. Well, I don't think you're appropriate. <laughs> Here's a question. Do you think they're remembering in the past, like the sample was red, or they're remembering into the future, I have to pack red? Ooh, that's a neat question, actually. Isn't it? Think about it. I could ask you that, you could just tell me. That'd be easy. Try that with a pigeon. You just look at it and say, What did you, so is it, you're in the pigeon. Um, <laughs> Well, you're thinking back you're thinking forward they used to go, you know use it as a pigeon you can't ask them you can ask them they will do it that's pretty good um, <laughs> all they do is just stand there and with their eyes wide open nice still work with mammals is they have little expressions in their faces birds they always look the
0: same. <laughs>
1: So you have to design a very clever experiment. And Herb Reutblatt did this in 1980. Uh, there's an extra slide I threw in today to explain it. Okay, so he used symbolic matching to sample. And if the animal saw a red sample, it's supposed to pack a horizontal line. Okay? If it saw an orange sample, sorry, a vertical line. And a blue sample, an almost vertical line. You can see here right away that we have two samples that are easy to confuse, red and orange, and two lines that are easy to confuse, vertical and almost vertical. So, what we're going to do here, what Herb Roy did, is he looked at the errors they made. We know they can learn this. The question is, what kind of errors did they make? So, I've got to uh, explain this here. If you make mistakes when the choices they have to make are between one and two, they must be recoding, encoding retrospectively because it's easy to confuse red and orange. So they're looking back and thinking, oh, I can't remember which one it was. They're similar because the two samples are really different. They're as different as two lines could be. If they're encoding prospectively... Choices are two between two and three. They must be encoding prospect. So I made a little di- diagram. Just made this this morning. It took me forever to figure out how to put a fill in a circle in the right color. I don't know why. So the birds are presented with these key lights. Okay, so it's a, it's a Skinner box. The bird pecks at a red sample. It then it's given a choice between a vertical line and a horizontal line. That seems pretty simple, doesn't it? How can two lines be any more, inter- uh, more different? Aha. Uh-huh. But what if the animal isn't encoding prospectively? It's encoding retrospectively. And it's like, okay, I know red is horizontal, orange is vertical. Now which one was it again? Red and orange are very similar. If it's been encoding prospectively into the future, what's going to happen? It has to match up what it sees in front of it. These two things here, what it sees in front of it, with the representation it has. So if it was a red sample with a horizontal line. Oh, that matches up, done. Now let's say... The animal is given an orange sample, and it pecks it orange. It's like five times usually, something like that. FR5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so make sure the birds see it. okay? And then it's given a choice between the vertical line and the almost vertical line. If it's encoding retrospectively, this should be easy, because orange and blue are different. They're radically different colors. But vertical and almost vertical, if it's encoding prospectively, matching up what it has in its representation to what it sees in front of it, the two little keys it's going to pack today will be on a touch This becomes hard. Do you understand this? This is a really subtle experiment. It's also an exceedingly cool experiment. Don't feel bad if you don't understand first time I read it, I was in graduate school and I didn't get it. So I want you to, if you have any questions, ask them now. This is when you ask them, please.
0: So if it's, if it's encoding retrospectively, it's going to have a between the
1: red and the orange? Yes, if it's encoding retrospectively, it's going to be confused. It's going to make mistakes when these are the choices because it's looking back Thinking it's red or orange, yes? Okay, and if it's doing it prospectively, it's going to be confusing between the vertical lines and all the all vertical lines? You, yes, sir, are correct. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Other questions? That's, you've totally nailed it. That's right. Do you see why? Like, one way it's easy. Looking back, one comparison's easy. Looking forward, the other comparison's easy. Looking back, one's hard. Looking forward, one's hard, depending on the comparison. So we see where they make mistakes, They're good at this, by the way. Pigeons are good at this. Other questions on this? Okay, it works like this. What happens is, when it is, we have a shorter retention interval, just a few seconds, they encode retrospectively. When it is a longer retention interval, they encode prospectively. And each bird's a little different. At some point, the bird switches over from retrospective encoding to prospective encoding, which makes some sense. So early on, retrospective; later, prospective. Yeah, and it depends really on on the on the bird. Everyone's a little bit different, and it kind of makes some sense. What would you do? What did I remember, or what am I going to have to do? Well, you're going to switch that over. The longer something gets, the longer the retention of it gets. You wouldn't think you could design an experiment like this to test pigeon memory, but like Herb Wright Black did. Herb's at the University of Hawaii. He studies dolphins. Every year he comes to this conference we all go to in Florida, the Comparative Cognition Society. Every year we all go and all get together and we talk, and everybody loves the weather except Herb's like, it's not Hawaii. And we all tell him to go to hell. That's not true. No one tells him to go to hell. We think it. Okay. The eight arm radial maze is another paradigm that's used a lot. This is a, an, a maze that has a central platform and eight arms that radiate out like the spokes of a wheel. And the, the arms are about a meter long, maybe longer, a meter and a half, depending on the maze. So you put the rat in the middle, and then you put food at the end of each arm. And the rat's task is to go to the end of the arm, get the food, go back to the middle. Now, what would you do? I don't know about you, but I would start at one and just go clockwise till I was done, right? Rats don't do that. They go in a haphazard fashion, except seven of their first eight choices are correct, once they've learned the reference memory part of this, which is, oh, there is food at the end of the arms I must empty. So the reference memory part is go to end, you know, just flute at the end of the arms. The working memory part of this task is what? What's the working memory part of the radial maze task? Which arms you have to down. Yep. Which arms you been down or which arms are left to go down? Prospective, retrospective, and you know retrospective, prospective, but you know what rats do? Halfway through they switch. Because it's a smaller number. Oh, which ones are left? They do exactly, if you were doing it this way, not like we, we would all go clockwise or counterclockwise. But if I said you couldn't do that, what you'd do is you'd start to remember which ones are left or which ones are, yeah, which ones are still there, then you'd switch over to which ones I haven't gone down yet. So that's exactly what rats do. That's the working memory part of this. Cool thing about that is that when you lesion hippocampus, rats can remember the task. They go down arms. They just can't remember where they've been. They keep going down the same arm. They go all over the place. This was uh, a It that was developed by Altman Samuelson in 1976. This is something that I've cited so many times that I know the whole citation by heart, the whole thing. And I bet I'm not the only person in the field that can do that. It's weird because it's just it's been cited thousands of times. Rats actually chunk things, just like people do. Again, I started out by saying, well, let's not worry about what people do, but there are some things that all memory systems should do, and one of them is be efficient and chunk. How did McCune and Roberts test this? Well, they had, this time, a 12-arm radial maze. Three arms had chocolate. Rats love chocolate. Three arms had cheese. Yes, rats do like cheese, not as much as chocolate. And three arms had 45 milligram food pellets, which don't sound that good, do they? Oh, and three arms had nothing. The rats very quickly go, chocolate, cheese, food pellets, and I'm not going down those three arms. There's nothing there. I remember, this is Todd McEwtie's master's thesis, and I remember I was at Bill's postdoc, or Robert's postdoc, then. I remember sitting in the lab and Todd saying, what do we do? I said, you just take them off. They're not going down those arms. Don't worry about it. There's nothing you can do. You want to sit there for five minutes, ten minutes? Finally came up with, well, we'll sit there. let them sit there in the middle for five minutes. And Todd said they would sit there for five minutes and just stare at the video camera. They're not stupid. They're rats, but they're not stupid. Okay, so that's interesting in its own right. How do we know they chunk? Well what you do is one day on a test day, you switch cheese with chocolate and nothing with food pellets or whatever. They very quickly get surprised. They go down a chocolate they think it's a chocolate arm, it's a cheese arm. Then they switch over. Oh, I see chocolates, cheese, cheese is chocolate. They just switch over. However, if you just move all the do it all, move it all, move them all randomly, they're screwed. They don't know what to do. Their memory is actually poor. Because they were remembering chocolate, cheese, food pellets, go to hell. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what the the rats were remembering. That's what the rats were remembering. So they chuck? That's pretty cool, right? Questions about that? you can do with people is tell them to forget something. It's easy. I tell you guys sometimes, oh, don't worry about that. That won't be on test. Stephanie just asked me, how much do we have to know about the cholinergic system, the acetylcholine system, and the hippocampus for the test? I said, yeah, don't worry about it. Know that there's an acetylcholine system and it's in hippocampus and Alzheimer's attacks it. Beyond that, don't worry about it. Well, yeah, I could test you on that. That would be mean, but I couldn't. It's exactly what you do here. You do matching the sample with pigeons, red versus green, whatever. And then you, in, in the middle, during the retention interval, you give them a, a triangle that says test, it means test is coming, or a circle. Well, you would use a circle. A square, and that means it's not, there's not going to be a test. You're going to get some food. There's no test. Okay. So then what do you do? Then, you, then I can do that with people. I can give you a list of words, and after some words, I go, forget. And you literally don't do as well as the ones when I say remember. How do we test that? I test you on the ones I told you to forget. How do we test it with pigeons? Now and then when I, told, when I gave you a square, I go, ah, kidding, test. They don't do as well. It's directed forgetting. That's Peter Trolley's work. To a very cool experiment by Eminent Shuttleworth on metamemory in pigeons. Metamemory is knowing what you know, metacognition. So if I ask you, do you know the capital of Iran? Who here knows? Don't tell, don't say what it is. Who here knows what the capital of Iran is? Literally none of you. Wow. Who here knows what the capital of Vietnam is? Yeah, it's Hanoi. Put your hands up. So you know you know that. Right? In fact, I could even give you, I could say, how confident would you be in answering that question properly? I would hope with Vietnam it's 100%. It's, It's Hanoi. That's pretty cool, knowing what you know. So it's meta metacognition. It's like how you can go into a test and go, oh my, we're screwed in this thing. I had no clue. Okay, how would we test this with pigeons? This is hard. We're going to use matching to sample again. We're going to use the, there's going to be a test. But we're going to throw in a little option. We're going to throw in... Sorry, not there's going to be a test. We're going to throw in a thing that says, okay, uh, you can either... Between the, the, the study, when they see one color, and the test, when they see two colors, the pigeons can say... Not say, but peck. They can peck a key that says, give me a test. Or they can peck a key that says, I have no idea. I don't want a test. I'll take a smaller amount of food than I would get if I had a test. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? It's good? Okay. How are we going to test if they actually know what they know? There's a couple of ways. First of all, we see how do you make a, one of these tasks hard? Well, you make the retention interval longer between the study and the test period. The pigeons pick the safe key, which is the one, don't give me a test, just give me a little tiny bit of food. They're more likely to pick, pick that the longer the retention interval is. That's cool. We can also test them to see if they actually know what they know. So sometimes when it's a really long retention interval and the pigeons are like, I have no idea. Give them a test anyway. <laughs> Guess what? They are very good at it. The pigeons know what they know. Wow. It's funny, Alistair Inman, who was a postdoc in Sarah's lab, um, I was a graduate student, and it took a long time for them to publish this stuff. But Alistair is a behavioral ecologist. He studies uh, animal behavior. And he was doing this as a, as a foraging experiment. He wasn't even thinking of this at all in terms of memory. He presented this to our lab group. And everyone went, dude, you are testing metamemory pigeons. And he's like, I don't even know what that means. Explain it to me. Because Sarah was a biologist and a psychologist at the same time. So some, some of her students were biology students, some were psychology students. And uh, it's a pretty cool paper. Questions about that? Does that make sense? Okay. I told you about the priming work that I did. So in fact, again, it's similar in that we can look at things that we would expect to be universal. We would, expect to, we would expect that seeing a stimulus will enhance identification of seeing that same stimulus, even if it's degraded. that of course, the stuff that I've Questions so far? See, so the thing is that we can study animal memory in a lot of respects in the same ways that we study human memory. And a lot of the same phenomena are going to be there. However, if we're going to be comparing different species in different tasks, we have to take a look at their evolutionary history. Why should it be that chimps can learn sign language? Why? The chimps have language? So why would we test chimps in language tasks? Because it's a cool trick. Instead, let's test chimps' ability to remember individuals of their own family group, of their own troop, I think it's called. Let's test chimps' abilities to detect theory of mind in others. So how do they know how others think? Can they make guesses? Danny Pavanelli's has done a lot of work on this. this. Stuff's amazing. Should we expect differences between species? Well, we find them, we take them and we look at their evolutionary history. And we say, okay, this, this species should be good at this or this or this. Now, there is something pretty exceptional about humans. I would never deny that. No other species does what we do. And that's not just like saying, well, humans can't fly. We can't fly, but we can invent flying machines. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Other animals can't do that. But one of the things that we can do, uh, so the other animals, we have to look at what the natural history of an animal is and that gives us some clues as to what kind of cognitive systems might have developed questions about this stuff Laurie and I have this idea of having a course entirely about animal cognition it would be fun would anyone find that fun or does that just sound stupid it's not going to offend me I'm going to shit I I get paid the same way you think it'd be interesting? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. I wonder if, yeah, it's one of these things I did as a special topics course nine years ago, and there were only 12 people in the class or eight people, and it's like, it's not really worth it. It was really fun. Jeez, that didn't take long. You know, it didn't take long. The thing skipped over eight, eleven slides. <laughs> Any questions, comments, criticisms, kudos, key sounds, other key sounds? Stop the recording. I'll quickly go over the test.
0: I hope you learned something, but if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each, uh, song for each, uh, uh, episode <laughs> lecture, uh, is, uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at Ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out, um, Often I put links, uh, actually, in the, uh, if we show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time.